Sage is a virtual body held together by a set of ideas and ideals. You ask what a think tank does, and basically what a think tank does is it battles in the arena of ideas. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for the show. Well, I have a treat for you today, or I guess, given when this episode is coming out, maybe a Christmas present would be a more appropriate term to use. Today, we have another special guest, a very special guest, in fact, Ron Baker, the founder of the Verisage Institute and the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Soul of Enterprise. For those in the audience that may not have heard of Ron, this is going to be special. Ron is a leading voice, if not the leading voice, in the discussion over the years of getting rid of the time card in public accounting and specifically killing the billable hour. He literally wrote the book on that topic. But that's not the only reason I ask him on the show. He started as an accountant himself, working at one of the national firms. Plus, he got a little experience in industry. And actually, he has quite a bit of experience running his own practice. Later on in his career, though, fairly early, actually, he decided to go full-time in the area of firm consulting, speaking and consulting on topics that help firms run better. You're really going to enjoy this episode. And if you do enjoy this episode, of course, please leave us a rating. I know I mention that often, but I've noticed a few new reviews and a whole lot of new ratings in the last few months. So that's really neat to see, and I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career or for any accounting associations that you're involved in, please reach out to me as well. I'm always happy to help. Well, with that, let's get started with today's very special guest. Here's Ron... Baker. Well, hello, Ron. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. This is going to be fun. Well, for the audience, I've been very blessed to have some tremendous guests agree to come on our show, but today is a really special day. Ron Baker, the founder of the Verisage Institute and also the host of The Soul of Enterprise, one of my absolute favorite podcasts, is on the show. There are a couple podcast series that I can honestly say make me think about the world and how it works in a much deeper and profound way, and The Soul of Enterprise is definitely one of those shows. I look forward to every Friday when their show comes out. It's very entertaining, and you learn a lot. Ron and his co-host, Ed, have great senses of humor. It's a really wonderful show. Before you run out and download a few episodes, though, we have Ron himself on our program to talk about his own career story and how the Verisage Institute was formed, and then to help us think a little bit about the future of our profession and maybe prepare for that future even. So, Ron... Before we get into the present day, I do think it's good that we start at the beginning so everyone understands what experiences shaped your career. What led you to decide to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the place? Wow, Mark, that's a great question. I was always able to add numbers really fast in elementary school. I learned that pretty good. And my father was a barber and he owned his own shop. And he'd come home at night and sit at the kitchen table and fill out his deposit slips, which were checks and cash. And I'd sit there and I'd add them up for him. And he loved that because he didn't need a calculator. Probably wasn't any calculators at the time. And anyway, I'm sitting there one night and I'm looking at his other papers and things. And there's an envelope and it says Pizeni and Brinker. 
certified public accountants. And that firm still exists. It's in Santa Rosa, California. And I said to my dad, I said, Dad, what's a certified public accountant? And I'm in like eighth grade or something. And he said, that's somebody who charges a lot of money. (laughs) So that intrigued me. And it kind of stuck in my head. I said, maybe this is what I'd like to do. And then I got into high school. They had a two-year program of accounting in high school taught by a guy named Angelo Catalani, who was phenomenal. He was my mentor. He really pushed me. He would bring in CPAs to talk to the class. My dad's barbershop, he had a lot of CPA customers. And Mark, when you're getting your hair cut, you're a captive audience. So my dad's poor CPA customers would have to watch me pull up a chair in front of theirs and pepper them with questions about the CPA exam. What college did they go to? All of these things. What's it like? What do you do? All these, And they were all very gracious and really helped me and became my mentors. And that's what got me into it. But it was the two-year accounting program that really did it because not only did he teach us accounting, he taught us taxes. And I started doing taxes in high school for my friends. And then we opened up this like tax thing where people could just walk in with their W-2s. A lot of them had part-time jobs. And I would sit there as a sophomore, junior in high school doing taxes. I started doing my dad's business books. I started doing a lot of his friends' business books. And I started defending people in IRS audits at the age of 17. So I kind of knew in high school that this was the path for me. Oh, my gosh. At 17? <laughs> At 17. They couldn't believe it. They said, what? And I had to go through a bunch of wriggle or more, but it's like, yeah, okay, well, this is who they want to speak on their behalf. That's their right, even though you're technically, quote, unquote, a minor. I don't know if the rules have changed on that, but I was able to do it several times. I wonder if when that was happening and if they're thinking, oh, this one's going to be easy. This is just a kid. And then they got more than they bargained for. <laughs> yeah. No, they all resulted in a no change. Beautiful, beautiful. Too funny. I'm sorry. Another thing that I noticed or that piqued my interest here is a two-year accounting program during high school because I know of the ones that are semester or one year, but a two-year, we should do more of that. That would promote the profession. You know, there's a lovely statistic that Barry Melanson from the AICPA talks about that if a high schooler takes a year of accounting, sometimes called bookkeeping, they're less likely to major in it in college because they're kind of turned off by it. When you have two years, you have time to explore other things, you know, like taxes, like bringing in CPAs, both from industry and public practice. So I think you're right. I think a two-year program would really portray the profession better than just a one-year or certainly not having. The other thing is, I think CPAs really need to get out into high schools and talk to those folks because every time I do it, I'm just amazed that people have these stereotypes of what it is a CPA does. And they're just blown away when you tell them, no, no, for the most part, we're financial psychiatrists. We should all have couches in our office because we coach our customers through very difficult times and the good times and the bad. And that's really what we do. We interact with people. We build relationships, and that's not well understood. So true. So true. Wow. That's interesting. About I haven't heard that statistic from Barry uh, Melanson. That's intriguing. About a third of our podcast guests were influenced in high school, but then that makes me wonder how many <laughs> didn't become an accountant, so I can't invite them on the show. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like from what I saw on LinkedIn that you may have went straight from college to KPMG. That may have been your first job. And so I guess if so, how did you get that role and how did it sort of lay the groundwork for how your career was going to progress? 
Right. Well, I worked for a CPA during high school as well. I interned and so that helped me build my own practice and gave me the confidence to go before the IRS. And I had a practice, a thriving practice actually during college. That's basically what put me through college. And when I was on the path to graduate, take the exam and all that, I knew I wanted to work for a big eight. And Mark, that's how you carbon date a CPA. You listen to how, what do they say? Big eight, big six, big five, big four, because that puts them in the era, right? That's right. (laughs) In my case, it's the big eight. And so I was focused like a laser beam on the big eight. And I knew I wanted to work for one of them. And I interviewed with all eight of them, and I got six offers. I also interviewed just for fun with two regional firms that were really good and still exist to this day, and I'm, I still very much admire them. But I had my heart set on PricewaterhouseCoopers because a buddy who was one year ahead of me in high school and then in college, he joined PwC in 1983. And he kind of pulled me through college. He told me the professors to take, the classes to stay away from, how to sit for the exam, what review course to take, all of that. He was great and still a very good friend. And I knew I wanted to work for PwC, so they were the ones I was really after. But then Pete Mark Mitchell brought me in for an interview, and I went to lunch with a college buddy who I knew, and it was the recruit lunch. And there was another guy there, and it just seemed like it was the culture. And it was this, Pete Mark made me an offer to go into their private business advisory services, what they call the PBAS group. And the PBAS group only worked with privately held companies and they tended to be smaller. And one of the things I didn't want to do is go into either PwC or Pete Mark and get stuck auditing cash for Wells Fargo or Chevron for two years. That just would have bored me to tears. PBAS allowed me to do consulting, tax, and audit, so it was more varied. I got interaction with the customer, could talk to the CFO, sometimes even the owner, and it was just a more entrepreneurial group, and I just felt at home at Pete Marwick. People say the culture, the culture. Of course, it's the culture. It's been the culture forever. All eight of those firms had different cultures that I interviewed with, and some I liked, and some repelled me like you wouldn't believe. And you can't put your finger on it. It's the vocabulary they use. It's their worldview. It's a whole host of things that are very amorphous. I felt right at home at Pete Marek, and mostly because of this entrepreneurial group. When I ask you that question, I temporarily have forgot that you had tax clients already in college. So did you ever toy with the idea of not going to work for anybody and just... No, because back then to get a CPA in the state of California, you needed your 500 hours of audit. And the quickest path to that was the big eight because that's what you ended up doing. And so you got your 500 hours easily within the first year. But you had to put in two years to really get them to sign off on it. So it's kind of like a you know underpaid apprentice program for the big eight. Kind of still is in some respects. But I knew I wanted to start my own practice. But I'll tell you, and this we can talk about later on because I think you have a question similar to this. I thought I'd be a lifer. This is home. This is where I'll be for the rest of my life. To show you how delusional <laughs> and ignorant I was, I really thought I'd be there for the rest of my life. Boy, did that turn out to be wrong. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, you've baited me pretty well there. So what caused you to eventually leave Pete Marwick Mitchell? (laughs) Well, I think like most of the people that join a big four, you climb down this incredible learning curve. You get to see a lot of things, experience a lot of different industries in the first year. It's really, you learn a lot, but then you start to repeat 
And then it's not a burnout. It's actually a rust out. You get bored. You're no longer challenged. And that's kind of what happened to me. I just didn't want to audit anymore. I just thought auditing is kind of like going in after the war and bayonetting the wounded. It's so historical. It's like we were playing historians with bad memories. And I knew at that point that I wanted to start my own practice because I had done it once and I knew I could do it again. So that's why I left Pete Mark after two and a half years. And it was right before they merged with like Maine Herdman and then eventually became KPMG. Okay. Okay. So I was curious about the time in between KPMG and starting Verisage. There's about 12 years in there that are unaccounted for on LinkedIn, Ron. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there were some zigs and zags. This is where you kind of zig and zag in your career, right? And you go down one fork and then you come to another fork and you go down another path. I actually had a high school friend who was an Apple dealer owner. This is back in the days, Mark, when Apple didn't own all the stores. They had a dealer network, and it was also back in 1987, so desktop publishing was taking off, and Apple dealers were just printing cash. I mean, literally, people would line up to buy their Macs and their Macs SEs, their laser printers, because desktop publishing was taking off. And so he was doing really well, and I joined, and I became his CFO. At the same time, however, I was still starting to rebuild my practice. I made connections with older customers. I found new ones through new connections. The whole social capital thing is very, very interesting and how that works. And maybe we can talk about that too. But I was able to build up a practice and then me and my friend kind of had a falling out over various things. So I had a practice that was big enough. And so I merged it into a firm that had a very innovative business model. Well, that lasted about a year. It didn't work out very well. But me and another guy in that firm, we got along really well. And we went out on our own in 1989 and launched Baker and Barnett. His name is Justin Barnett. He still practices to this day. He actually bought my half of the firm when I started Verisage and started to do consulting and writing full time. And so that's how I zigged and zagged between having my own firm for that 12-year period or whatever, 10-year period. I actually started Verisage, I think, in 2000. So I practiced for 11 years with Justin But I also started doing teaching and writing as of 1994. So it was kind of a hybrid career between 94 and 2000. It's complicated, but that's, I'll just leave it there. (laughs) Okay. Oh, sure. Did you ever work at, is it Armanino? I think is the way you pronounce it, is it? Yeah, I do now. They're chief value officer, and it's, it's another one of those opportunities that kind of furthers the mission of Verisage, which of course is to ultimately rid the world of the billable hour and the timesheet. And since Armanino is the 22nd largest firm in the country, I thought it'd be really fun to try and get one of these bigger firms to do this because this revolution started in the smaller firms and now it's infiltrated into the bigger firms. And so to me, it's furthering the mission. So yeah. Okay. All right. For some reason, I thought that early in your career, maybe you had been a staff accountant there or something like that. No, never was. I knew Andy really well, the son of the founder of Armanino, Andy Armanino Jr., actually. And I've known him for years and we got along. I spoke at his firm a couple times and then he brought me into a partnership retreat in 2015 or 16. And yeah, I kind of shook, shook everything up with <laughs> talking about value pricing. And ever since he's tried to bring me on board in some type of capacity, and we were finally able to agree as of 2018 to do it. So, Okay. 
Okay. I didn't mean to go off on tangent there. No, no, it's fine. I'm curious. So how did Verisage or the idea for Verisage come up? And yeah, I have to tell you, think tank is one of those terms I think, oh yeah, you know, think tank. Yeah, I know what that is. And then I'm not sure I can describe what a think tank really does. So... I don't think a lot of people can, actually. <laughs> Part of it's appeal to me. So I guess, why did you start it? What was the initial vision? And what do you guys do exactly now? Yeah, another set of great questions. And give you just a little context. I got to back up a little bit. In 1989, okay. when Justin and I went out on our own, I became obsessed with customer service, what we call today customer experience. Back then, it was called Total Quality Service, or TQS. It was called that in contrast to TQM, Total Quality Management. So I started studying Disney, and I started studying Nordstrom, and American Express, and Lexus, and L.L. Bean, and Gore-Tec, and all these companies that just had, I mean, unbelievable, stellar reputations when it came to customer service, Disney, obviously. And I just said one day, part of our problem is we don't give an advanced price to our customers. Therefore, they never know how much the bill is. And I was tired of getting the conversation, the angry phone call or people coming in going, why didn't you tell me it was going to cost this much? And my only response to that, Mark, is I spent the time. Because remember, we were taught that we sold time. I was taught that at the big eight. I did that in my own practice in high school. I kept a timesheet and that's how I priced. And I said, this has got to stop. We've got to start giving fixed prices. Now, there was nobody on the circuit talking about it. There were no books on it. There were no seminars on it. Nobody knew what the heck they were doing, but we decided we wanted to do this to create a better customer experience. So me and my partner just did it. That enabled us to get rid of timesheets. It enabled us to raise our prices and go after a better, higher value customer. It enabled us to shed customers. It enabled us to get rid of timesheets for our team members. We didn't care about time. We cared about results. And because of that experience and how well it worked, I knew I wanted to write a book. I said, this is the book. I knew I wanted to write a book since 1980. And then there's a whole story behind that too. But I said, this is the topic. So I threw myself into teaching this topic and researching the book. I published my book in 1998 from Harcourt Brace published it. It was $79 when it first came out. And then that book was picked up by Paul Dunn and Rick Payne of Results Accountants out of Australia. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or run across either of them, but they're massive thought leaders trying to teach the profession to move from compliance to consulting. Paul Dunn started waving my book on stage and he spoke around the world, <laughs> all over the US, all over Europe, all over Australia and New Zealand. That put me on the map and I started to get calls and invites to speak and I started working with Paul Dunn and their corporation called Results Accounting Systems and got to tour Australia with Paul Dunn and work with him. He's still a massive mentor to me and he said, I want to hire you in my company and I said, I'll be your worst employee because I'm basically unemployable. I hated being an employee at Pete Mark and I'll hate being an employee for you. So I want to think of something different. And I put together this paper called Operation Telescope, which laid out the vision of a think tank that was, results would develop and I would become its director. Well, Paul loved it. Rick Payne looked at it and said, Ron, how are we going to make money on this? I said, think tanks don't make money. You have members, you have subscribers, but it's really not for profit. And he just couldn't compute that. It didn't turn a profit. He didn't want to do it. So I said, well, okay. And I did it myself. Wow. 
Okay. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> it's hard to know where to go from there. <laughs> but that was 20 years ago, right? More or less? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, it was founded in 2000. I think the actual incorporation documents are sometime in 2000. I forget the exact date. Okay. Okay. So what does Verisage do now? Verisage is a virtual body held together by a set of ideas and ideals. That's what a think tank does. And basically what a think tank does is it battles in the arena of ideas. I happen to think tanks are the broker are the idea brokers for the last 40 years. You know, nobody cares what the Harvard Kennedy School of Government thinks anymore. When politicians or even just interested people want to read about certain things, they seek out think tanks. And it could be the right side of the aisle, it could be the left side of the aisle, doesn't matter. But the think tanks, the Brookings Institutions, Cato, American Enterprise, Hoover Institution. I've been a fanatic think tanker ever since college was members of like over 14 of them, I think, of all different political stripes, because I found their work to be much more accessible than academics in college. I didn't read papers by Harvard Kennedy School of Government. How boring they are. They're terrible. But the think tankers could market their ideas. You could go to their conferences and their scholars would explain things in terms that you can understand. Very complex ideas. And that appealed to me because I was trying to change a profession's business model from hourly billing to value pricing. And I knew that having a consulting firm wasn't enough. Just wasn't enough. Yeah, we could go out, we could change some firms and consult and blah, blah, blah. But what I wanted to do in the think tank was get like-minded people who were really smart, very articulate, could go out and teach this thing, proselytize about it, battle with the defenders of the billable hour and make value pricing and no timesheets triumphant. And I've always wanted to work with really smart people, but I didn't want to be economically tied to them. So I didn't want to do a consulting firm. The think tank appealed to me much more because we were battling in the arena of ideas. We were on the offense trying to give the billable hour and the timesheet the death penalty. I'm happy to report that after 20 years, I think our mission is accomplished. Billable hour has no friends. Nobody likes it. It's even intensely disliked by its friends. Nobody defends it anymore. And the firms that do, they just don't realize that it's dead. So many firms have converted to value pricing, and not just in accounting, but in law, in advertising, in consulting, in IT, in actuarial. All the professions that used to bill by the hour, it's dying. Now, it's not dead yet. Bad ideas never die out completely, but I'm very optimistic. We may not, end of the billable hour may not be within reach, but it's within sight. And that is, oh, I think, in large part to Verisage. And it's not just me, Mark. I'm not trying to say this to brag. It's because I got 24 wonderful fellows out there in all these different sectors, law, advertising, IT, accounting, whatever. And they've been out proselytizing and living it, doing it every day. And we are the premier leader of this revolution. Almost every pricing consultant out there that teaches on the circuit has been influenced by our work. And I'm immensely proud of that. Because now we're going to have to blow it up again and introduce a new model to the profession. But we can talk about that, too. So I'll stop there. Subscription pricing? Is that that where you're going with it? Okay. Yep. (laughs) See, I really do listen to the show. You do. I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, are there any stats out there on how many firms still work off the billable hour or timesheets? Yes. Okay. There are. And the problem with them is, as you know, 
statistics lie. They're not a random sample in these surveys that the AICPA does, that state societies do, but they at least show us a vector of trends. And the latest AICPA survey that I looked at, which has been corroborated by other outfits that do these types of surveys, whether it's Intuit, Sage, Receipt Bank, whatever, somewhere between 30 or 40% of firms self-identify as value pricers. Now, 30 years ago, when I started this crazy thing in 1994, so whatever that is, however many years that is, 26 years, I guess, you might have had 1% answer that question. So we've definitely hit the tipping point. The tipping point is defined as when 17% of a population adopts an idea, then it's just a matter of time before it starts to diffuse. The question is how fast is the rest of that diffusion? Well, we've hit that tipping point. And when I say mission accomplished, Verisage, that's what I mean. We've got this thing to a critical mass. And because we've got people inside the top 100, firms inside the top 10 that are doing this. And that's huge. And so that's my best guess. I think there's about 30 to 40%. Now, how many of those firms have gotten rid of timesheets? It's a much smaller number. So we're not done yet. We still need the 5%, 10% of firms probably have gotten rid of timesheets. So we still need that other 20 or 30% to do so. And that's why we need to keep going to some extent. But that's my best guess how many firms are out there doing it. Okay. Okay. So we talked about this a little before we hit the record button. The audience for any podcast is widespread. Anyone can listen to a podcast, but we definitely target our show towards younger up-and-coming professionals, people still in school or still in the first four or five years in their career. What implications do you think this has for them? Other than making life better, I guess I didn't mean it that way. (laughs) Is there anything they should be doing to prepare or be thinking about as they're coming into, into this dynamic, changing workplace where more and more firms are starting to convert? Right. Well, put it on their radar screen, be my first piece of advice. I mean, ask the firms that you're interviewing with, how do you price your services? And if they look at you and say, what a dumb question by the hour, to me, that's a yellow light. That means your firm is stuck in a business model that was originated in 1919. It's 101 years old and they haven't changed. When I joined Pete Morick, we had the same business model as a lot of firms today. And it's what? It's 36 years later? And we're still operating off the same business model. I mean, this is crazy. And so I would say, put it on your radar, at least ask the question in your interviews, realize that firms that value price have better relationships with their customers. They usually have happy customers. They make more profit, which means the firm can make investments in the future of the firm, hire better grade talent, innovate more, give you time to innovate more, probably invest more in your continuing education. There's just a lot of down-the-road benefits to it. And it's just a saner way to run your business because now you're going to be judged on results, not efforts. I think it's the great equalizer between men and women, by the way. There's all this talk about the mommy track and the glass ceiling, but if you're in a value price environment, your worth is dependent upon your output, not your input. So it doesn't matter how long you stay at the office. It doesn't matter if you're the first one in and the last one out at night. Presenteeism, as it's called, you know, being there, having your butt in a seat in a cubicle, doesn't matter anymore under this paradigm. And so you're based upon the value that you produce, which cannot be measured by the time spent, at least for knowledge workers. It's literally firms that value price and measure hours are literally plunging a ruler into an oven to determine its temperature. It's the wrong measuring stick. So I would suggest to young people that they ask about how these firms price when they interview with them. 
That's a good point. I have to ask you about pricing 2.0 then, <laughs> just as I ask you about the statistics. <laughs> Are you seeing firms switching or any movement towards subscription pricing specifically within accounting firms? Some have. Now, here's the deal with this. This goes back to definitions and how do we describe things. When we say value pricing all the way, making the transition, we actually mean getting rid of their timesheets as well. But a lot of that 30 or 40% statistic that I cited earlier will say, oh yeah, we value price. And then you dig a little deeper and you find out they do timesheets. Well, if you're doing timesheets, you're not value pricing. I got news for you. Because in true value pricing, you don't need timesheets because you're looking at a whole bunch of other things. It's the same with subscription. People say, oh yeah, we do subscription. And what they really mean is we estimate the number of hours that we think it's going to take. We might tack on a little fudge factor and then we divide by 12. That's what we mean by subscription because it's a monthly payment. No, that's not subscription. Subscription is the model that I am preaching is the concierge medicine model. So when you hire a concierge doctor, usually subscribe to them for some monthly amount. Now it can vary. It can vary from the price of cable television, you know, a few hundred bucks a month, or it can be up to, well, there's probably doctors out there charging four or five grand a month for a full family to like corporate CEOs and things. But basically when you have a concierge doctor, it's a, usually a general physician and they handle all your medical needs that they're capable of doing under their roof. And of course, what they're capable of doing under their roof is always expanding. Some of them are getting diagnostic equipment, MRIs, CAT scans, those types of things. Some of them do blood work, lab work. Some of them do pharmacology, dispensing, drugs, whatnot. And just like Amazon Prime, every time they add one of these services, they're not necessarily upping the price. Basically, they're selling you insurance and peace of mind saying, hey, Mark, anything that happens with you, sometimes your family, you're covered for anything that we can do. And to me, that model makes perfect sense for CPAs because if you think about a doctor, they're trying to keep you healthy, not just cure you when you're sick. They want to keep you healthy. Well, what's a CPA's goal? We want to keep our customers healthy financially. So why can't we have the same model and build a business that actually has got annual recurring revenue? And rather than being in a transactional relationship with our customers at all times, selling tax returns and compliance work and blah, 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 why can't they subscribe to our firms? And we have a direct one-on-one -on -one relationship. And then we just say, whatever we can do, you're covered. You get audited, you're covered. Now, there's an insurance component to that, but there's also a big peace of mind component to that and a convenience component to that that we can price for because that's incredibly valuable. And that's my vision for value pricing, what we humorously call value pricing 2.0. But what happens if I have to spend a couple extra hours on the client? <laughs> Big deal. Because you're not looking at the math of the moment. You're looking at the lifetime value of the customer. And if you can get a member to subscribe to your firm for one year, there's a 90% chance you'll have them for life. So when you go to tell, sell that practice, tell me what's more valuable, having a bunch of transactional relationships where you're basically starting with zero revenue every year or having right on your income statement, rolling forward every month, annual recurring revenue. Whoever buys that firm is going to be far more interested in buying annual recurring revenue than a bunch of whip off your timesheets. Definitely. Definitely. I don't want to make light of COVID. Obviously, it's had horrible effects on a lot of families. I am curious if you have any feel for, you know, many of us were launched into, you got to work at home. Do you have any feel for whether or not that 
has caused more firms to go towards value pricing and getting rid of the timesheets? Or do you really think it has any effect? I, I didn't plan to ask you this. It just occurred to me. You know, it's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about it because we're trying to gather data points on this because people say work from home, remote work. We should drop those qualifiers. It's just work. It's never mattered where knowledge workers do their work. You know, the old joke about you bring your coffee to the office. Well, the joke today is you bring your office to the coffee, Starbucks, and be completely productive as a knowledge worker. So we're not tied to a physical location. So who cares if it's home or at the office or sitting on top of a mountain? It's not a place we go. It's something we do. And we do it to generate results for the customers that we're privileged to serve. So we are seeing a trend to more remote work. However, I don't know if it's going to last. Once we get a vaccine or whatever happens, viral attenuation, herd immunity, whatever you want to call it, and we're able to get out of these various stages of lockdown and get back to work, I don't know how many firms are going to keep up with the remote because I think they're still caught in this trap of, you got to be here to be productive. They confuse being busy with being effective. And there's a lot of people who are just control freaks in firms. They just want their people in their chairs and their cubicles so they can keep an eye on them, which is treating them like infants. I mean, the only place time spent should matter is in prison, certainly not in a knowledge organization. So I don't know how many firms are going to continue with it, but I do think some will. And that's a good thing. And then other firms, yes, they're realizing that people, at least as self-reported, are more productive at home. We've probably seen these surveys, The Economist, various organizations, HBR, whatever. They put out these surveys saying, oh yeah, there's an uptick in productivity. Now, I got to tell you, Mark, take this with a huge vat of salt because when you dig down into these surveys, what you find is this is self-reporting by the employees. (laughs) So if some group that your employer hired calls you up and say, we'd like to survey you about what it's like to work at home, and you get to the 30th question is, you feel you're more efficient or more productive? What are you going to say? I'm probably going to say yes. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably not going to say no. But the thing is, I think a lot of people on the other side of that, a lot of people are worried about being laid off or whatever. So maybe they did up their game, but they upped it by focusing on the result. It's just like looking at a pile of laundry. Nobody looks at a pile of laundry and says, wow, I really got to put in the hours on this. No, you look at a pile of laundry and go, what's the best way to do this so I can get done with it and go do something more interesting? And by having that freedom, that autonomy to manage and plan your own work and your work day, I think it may have made people more productive. So in that sense, what you realize when you bill by the hour is if your people are getting more done in less time, billing by the hour is really stupid. Hmm. <laughs> I figured I'd get a good answer out of you. <laughs> that was going to launch us into a few minutes for sure. So <laughs> no, it's a great question because COVID has really kind of upended everything and changed things. And it's a perfect time to redo a firm's business model because you know, this is somewhat facetious in the accounting world, but people say changing a business model is like trying to fix the airplane while it's in flight. It's really difficult, but a lot of firms are grounded. Now, that's not so much true in accounting because audits and tax work and PPP and all that kind of runs through accounting and that needs to get done, but it is still a good time to re-examine the business model. And so we've seen some great innovation amongst firms putting their toe in the water and testing subscription or value pricing, and that's encouraging. Do you have a BHAG goal, big, hairy, audacious goal 
for a Verisage Institute, or I guess a different way to ask that is, what's the future look like for you guys? What are you looking to accomplish? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I'm going to admit something to you that I've never said publicly, but I'm willing to say it. I'm actually thinking of dissolving Verisage, because we've achieved our BHAG goal there with getting the Bill of Blower on the defensive, and we've won that intellectual war. Now I've got to turn my guns to the subscription economy, because that's a trend that's already out there. I mean, if anybody denies that we live today in a subscription economy, they haven't taken the time to look out the window. Because today you can subscribe to everything from guitars and roofs to boats and cars and Porsches and all sorts of things. I think in five years' time, you'll have the option to subscribe to almost everything. And businesses are going to have to deal with that. Whether or not they make the change, some of their competition will. And that's the new frontier. And I think if professional firms don't do it right, it'll be really a costly mistake. And I do think the model is the concierge model. And that needs to be explained and articulated to professionals so they feel comfortable and they realize the full benefits of offering a concierge service where the customer has complete peace of mind that they're covered for anything their firm can do. And if the firm can't do it, they're going to go out and find them just like a doctor would find a specialist, oncologist or orthopedic surgeon or whatever. And they're going to usher that relationship and quarterback that relationship. That's taking care of the customer from womb to tomb. That's a great sense of security, convenience and insurance. And we all buy insurance and are thrilled when we don't use it. And to me, that psychology has always been quite interesting. We don't invest enough in offer in pricing that, that insurance component of what we do, taking care of the customer, giving them that peace of mind, letting them sleep easily at night. You know, the whole you're in good hands. That can work in our world. And we just need people to go out there and articulate it. And Verisage is so strapped to the value pricing 1.0 paradigm. That's our brand. That's what we've been talking about. You ask people, hey, what do you think of when you think of Verisage? You know, they'll say value pricing or whatever. Well, subscription is a completely different animal. So maybe it requires a completely different model to push it inside the profession. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about these days. Uh, you slap a 2.0 on the back of the name, Verisage Institute 2.0. No, I wouldn't do that. I would actually dissolve it and come up with a new name and probably even a new group of fellows that would go out and push this. Because look, this scares even some of my fellows in the Verisage Institute. I don't think they've wrapped their heads completely around it. I haven't wrapped my head completely around it, but I've dug deep and I do think that it's the concierge medical practice, which, by the way, Mark, started in 1996. (laughs) The team doctor of the Seattle Sonics, the basketball team, was the first guy to really, he said, look, I can take care of my players. I know everything about them. Why can't I do this with my patients in my practice? So he started MD squared, MD squared, literally like a formula. And now that practice is like worldwide. It's international. I forget how many countries they're in, but it's an amazing concierge medical practice. And it was his vision. And he did it in 96. And so it's only taken us 24 years to catch on. So we're a little bit slow, but at least we're there. You know, just last week, we released the episode with Greg Tye. I'm Uh, feeling a little guilty. I feel like I have to call Greg and tell him he's going to lose his job at Verisage. (laughs) Greg Tye, well, he's non-value added anyway. So he's kind of got tenure in a negative way. He's fine. (laughs) <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Great kite, by the way, is my hero. 
I love Greg Kite, and I tell him that all the time. He's just my hero because I think making fun of something is a very effective way to ridicule it and to help people change their mind. It's not the only thing you need, but it's a big part of what you need, and Greg was a master at that. Yeah, that was a fun episode to record for sure. Well, we're going to end up going a little over time. I end every show with the same three questions. One thing, though, before we get to those, I would like to ask you, because I'm really curious, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of critical advice based on what you know now, what do you think that might be? Well, it wouldn't be just one thing. (laughs) I'd probably try and corner myself (laughs) and do a couple (laughs) hours. When I thought about this question, uh, because I've been asked this before, and it's a fantastic question, except for the one part. Because there's so many things. Life is complex and it's messy and it can't be put into one thing. But I would certainly want to know more about business model innovation. That wasn't on my radar. It wasn't even in my vocabulary. You know, we didn't talk about business models until late 90s, 2000s, that whole idea. But really disruptive threats come from new technology, but from new business models. And they're really important. Airbnb, uh, Uber. Apple, these outfits have revolutionized their industries, not just from new technology, but from new business models. And I didn't understand that. I also didn't understand pricing. I understood price theory in terms of economics, but I didn't understand the full ramifications inside of a business, customer psychology, consumer psychology, marketing, all of those things. Pricing's not taught in college very well. It's part of your marketing course, part of the four Ps. It's usually the last P. The professor usually devotes one day to it and says, oh, yeah, and the other P is pricing, and you just basically take your costs at a profit margin, and that's it. Well, there's so much more to it than that. Now pricing is its own profession. I can get a Ph.D. in it. I can get a master's in it. Some schools, I can get an MBA in pricing, and it has become a separate function in the business world since about the mid-1980s. And I slept through that. I never knew that there was a pricing revolution going on. Even when I was at Pete Marek, that's when about it started, 1984, 1987, somewhere in there. And it got by me. So I would want to tell my younger self, find out about this and learn about it. And then I would have been even more ahead of the curve. The other thing I'd want to tell my younger self is understand the difference between a metric and a measurement. This is not well understood in accounting because you go through accounting, you take these cost accounting courses and it looks precise and it looks like, okay, this is the cost, how much it costs to build this car for Apple to make this pencil for the iPad Pro or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that's not a measurement. It's a metric and metrics are contrived. They're assumed based upon the relationships that we make. The real difference between a metric and a measurement, for example, is, Mark, if you and I walk outside with a thermometer, it'll probably get the same measurement. We'll know the temperature. If it's a good thermometer, we'll probably get the exact same reading. But if I go look and do accounting, depending on the metrics I select, I'll get a radically different answer what that cost for the car to make the car was. Am I using full absorption costing? Am I using marginal costing? Am I using lean cost accounting? Am I using some other type? There's like six or seven different types. And they'll all throw off a different answer. Well, that's not a measurement. That's a metric. And it's really bad math. And one of our fellows at Verisage, a guy named Dr. Reginald Lee, has written about this. And what's fascinating is Reginald is not a cost accountant. He's not an accountant. He's an engineer. And here's the thing. Accountants didn't invent cost accounting. Engineers did. So not only is this guy, I think it's great that he's an engineer and he's leading us out of cost accounting. In my mind, he's destroyed cost accounting. He's destroyed it and he's substituted it with something much better. So that's one thing I'd want to understand at a much younger age than I did. 
And the last one is the difference between having a theory and having an identity. I thought accounting was the language of business. I thought accounting explained how the world works. Debits and credits around the world, everything balances out, blah, blah, blah. Well, it balances out because assets minus liabilities equals equity is an identity equation. It's not a theory. (laughs) A theory has to posit a hypothesis. It has to have assumptions built in like supply and demand. That's a theory. So a theory is the only thing you can use to peer into the future and make predictions or prescribe or control. And we don't even do that very well, but it's better than just having an identity equation that is true because of the way it's set up. And I didn't necessarily understand that really clearly until I got out of college, even though I minored in economics, but I always had cognitive dissonance between going to my accounting courses and my economics courses because I said, these are two totally radically different worldviews. And I didn't understand that until I started diving into the pricing aspect of it. Because in the real world, the fact is debits don't equal credits. And that's one of the things that we teach in pricing. So, You definitely would have had to corner yourself. That would have taken a while. (laughs) It was confusing. (laughs) It was confusing. But now I have a clearer grasp on it, thanks to people like Reginald and other authors that I've read over the years. And it's very clear to me that bookkeeping is bookkeeping, but economics is a much better explainer of how the world works, not bookkeeping or accounting. Yes, yes. Well, I do end every show with the same three questions. So let's go ahead and get to those. The first one's usually the easier one. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Oh, wow. That's another one of these things that's really, really hard to distill into one thing. I mean, just thinking about it chronologically, obviously getting the CPA certificate, finally getting signed off, finally graduating, passing the exam, all of those milestones wrapped into one is when you get that certificate mailed to you and you go out and you get it professionally framed or whatever and hang it on your wall. That's a big deal. The other thing I have to say is getting my first book published because I knew I wanted to be an author back in 80. I knew I wanted to write a book. I just didn't know on what. And when that first book came in the mail and it's yours, that's a feeling I can't even describe. Since that first book, I've written six more. And every time I get that first copy from the publisher, it's an adrenaline rush. So those would be the two big things. There's more though that I'm just as proud of. I have a mentor The reason I wanted to write a book since 1981 is because I read a book called Wealth and Poverty by George Gilder, who completely upended my worldview in college. I was taking economics, and this guy turned me inside out. So he's been my mentor for 39 years. We've had him on the show three times, and he has quoted me in two of his books. Wow. And I can't tell you... What a thrill it is. The guy who inspired me to become a writer basically gave me a whole world view to see him quote me blew my mind. So that was something I'm very, very proud of. And the last thing is the radio show. First off, being able to work with Ed Kless because Ed Kless is a genius. I love the guy. People say we share a mind. Well, we do. I mean, there's we can complete each other's sentences. I mean, it's really kind of like an old married couple, but we have a lot of differences, too. He's a libertarian. I'm more of a conservatarian. I mean, we agree on 90% of things, but we do have our disagreements. But the interesting thing I always tell people, I say, if you think it's hard disagreeing with Ed, try agreeing with him, because <laughs> the things we agree on, we probably, uh, in some instances, 
don't agree for the exact same reasons. And he's just been wonderful to work with. And we've been able to land some guests that are just giants, have been mentors to me for years, and him. People like Thomas Sowell, Deirdre Miklowski, Stephen Landsberg. I mean, it's most of the economists, actually, but there's a lot of other business writers and thinkers and that we just have had on the show. And I'm really proud of, we've done 316 shows, and it's an incredible body of work, and I'm really proud of that as well. So another multi-pronged answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. That's good. I'm actually impressed. I've listened to the show enough. I can catch on to when the two of you aren't agreeing on something. And you're so cordial about it, each of you. And then there's some humor. And I can't say I've heard frequently, oh, I don't agree with that. You know, but yeah, you can catch on. There's subtle hints sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and look, even when I disagree with Ed, he makes me think, twice as hard about it because if we don't line up, then I know there's a huge probability I'm wrong. We never say, oh, we'll just have to agree to disagree. That's a cop-out. We say, well, one of us is wrong. We just don't know it yet. (laughs) There you go. Second question. I used to say, tell us about a mistake you made. I changed this a little bit. Either way, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about the situation, the better, because that's how people learn from these. Well, I've already, I think, recounted a big one, which was when I started my career and walked into KPMG, I thought I'd be there for life. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a hard lesson to learn. Of course, it didn't take me too long to figure that this wasn't home for me for the rest of my life. But I think the other big one is the Kiwis, the New Zealanders have a saying, I think it's theirs, it may be Australia, but I think it's the Kiwis. They say you can't sit between two bar stools. I think Confucius said you can't chase two rabbits because you'll catch neither. And one of the hardest lessons for me was when I started teaching in 94, and then my first book was published in 98, and I started really speaking more publicly and traveling the world, starting in like 2000 in Europe and Australia and Canada and all over, moving into the legal space, the advertising space. I still tried to practice. And that, you just can't do that because you're not going to be effective at either. And it took me too long to figure that out. I wish that's another thing I'd tell my younger self, knock it off, pick one of these and stick with it, you know, be focused for crying out loud. So that's a big lesson, I think. The other thing is, I had to start a practice today, or maybe even join one, I would want one that was highly niched. Because although we all get into public accounting, and we all say this, and I said it too, I wanted to get into public accounting because I wanted a wide range of experience. I wanted to see manufacturers and professionals and different types of industries. And that's all great. And maybe that's great for your first couple of years. But if you're starting a business, you want to be niched because I can tell you emphatically that the most profitable firms in the world are niched. I just spoke with my good buddy um, the other day, who was my first senior at Pete Mark, and who was the one that took me out on the recruiting lunch and was my college buddy. He's in a practice that's niched. All he does is dentist. He won't touch anybody else. He refers him out to another CPA colleague of mine. But if he likes them, he gets along with them, and he only takes about 30% that come to him. He'll work with them, and because that's all he does is a dentist, he can handle that dentist from womb to tomb. So just like a concierge doctor, he's basically taking care of them on a subscription basis, and he is without a doubt the most profitable professional firm I've ever met. And he's a sole proprietor, about 12 people working for him. And when I say most profitable firm, I'm talking about big four, magic circle law firms, Wachtell Lipton is more profitable than maybe not all of them, but a good chunk of them, which is amazing if you think about it. And that's because he's niche. 
the lesson here is stop trying to please everyone. You're not tequila. You simply can't be all things to all people. You've got a niche. You've got to focus and put yourself in the box. And that scares a lot of people. Yeah, people tend to focus too much on what they feel like they're giving up instead of the wide world that's available out there to them. Absolutely. Well, last question, and we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? (laughs) Uh, You remember when you were a kid or in high school or even maybe in college and people say, travel when you're young. (laughs) You've got the energy. And I always thought that was really stupid. Yeah, I've got the energy and maybe the health, but I don't have the money. (laughs) So that was a lousy piece of advice. Probably, and I don't know if I was given this advice. I've certainly heard it, but I don't know if that's why I started doing it so much. But the whole idea that leaders are readers. I do remember reading something in Forbes or Fortune saying, what do these thousand CFOs have in common? And it was all they were voracious readers. And so I kind of set a goal. And because I knew I wanted to write a book, I knew to write a book, you have to basically read a library of books to do it. Because to become a better writer, you should read good writers. And so I just started setting a goal. I want to read 125 books a year. And a lot of years I made it. Some years I didn't. But read, 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 read. And read outside of your profession. Don't just read the accounting press. Read stuff outside of your profession. And don't accept the orthodoxies of your profession. There's a lot of hokum in the accounting world, like independence, for example, or cost accounting, a whole bunch of other things that need to be challenged and fought and reformed. And you're not going to get that reading accounting today or the accounting web. As much as I like those publications, it's not where I go for ideas. Read the think tanks, read the financial press, read books by other thought leaders that will give you a different perspective of than just your party line that you hear from the profession. And so I think challenging your profession's orthodoxies. And then my brother Ken, my late brother Ken, passed away a couple years ago, probably gave me the best single piece of advice for a speaking career. He said, Ron, stop trying to please everybody in the audience. A fourth of them aren't going to like you because you remind them of their ex-husband. And that is a very difficult thing to wrap your head around because you get evaluated and the one person that didn't really like you or wrote a negative comment, that's what you would focus on no matter how good all the other reviews are. But when he said that to me, that completely resonated. Yeah, you know, you're not going to get along with everybody. You just don't have the same chemistry or you remind them of someone, an uncle they didn't like, whatever. It's true. So that was a great piece of advice. (laughs) Those are not the words I thought that were going to come out of your mouth there at the (laughs) end. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. As I've mentioned several times, I really am a big fan of the show. I'm honored that you took the time to do this. If our audience would like to look the show up or find out more about Verisage Institute or you, what's the best place to point them online? Well, thank you, Mark. First off, we're honored to have you as part of the audience. It's a great community because we get to hear from a lot of our listeners. We do have listeners in some 30-something countries, 35, I think, something like that. And it's just great because even when they disagree or they just give us feedback on shows they like, didn't like, whatever it might be, it's just great to know that people are listening and you're kind of making them think different or at least think, which I think is really underrated these days and we probably don't spend enough time doing. 
So thank you for that. But people can find me all over the place. I'm on Twitter, at Ronald Baker. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also one of the LinkedIn influencer bloggers. So I think I have over 100 blog posts up there that talk about these various issues of the knowledge economy and pricing and marketing and all of these different things. So you can follow me there. You can also visit verisage.com, which is V as in Victor, E-R-A-S-A, GE.com. That's the think tank I run. We've got lots of great resources up there and firm stories that have made the conversion and all of that. By the way, a question you didn't ask me, and I thought you would, is where'd you get the name Verisage? It's actually back in the day when naming consultants would take two words and slam them together, you know, like Agilent. <laughs> and Verisage is veracity and sagacity. So it's true wisdom. That's where that name came from. And then you can also check out patreon.com slash TSOE, which is our subscription service to our radio show, which is at the soul of enterprise.com, which is the free radio show. You can go there. You can listen to every show we've ever done. You'll see full show notes on every show with probably other resources, link videos, white papers, whatever. But if you want to become a Patreon subscriber and get the show without the great kite commercials, we call it our anti-kite option. Our very first level of Patreon subscriber is called anti-kite. So you don't have to listen to great kite anymore. And that's easily worth 10 bucks a month. And then we also do bonus shows where we, Ed and I will stay on Friday after the live show goes dark and we will do another hour or so just talking about various things. And that's our bonus content. And every now and then we put out a show during the week as well when there's a hot topic out there. So that's how people can find me. And you can also email me at ron at Verisage. Com, and I'm happy to take emails from folks. I mean, Mark, all your listeners are probably colleagues or soon-to-be colleagues, so I'm always happy to talk to fellow accounting colleagues. Beautiful. Well, thank you. That was much more generous than I was expecting. Thank you. This really has been an honor. Ron, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Mark. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Well, that was my interview with Ron Baker. And like I mentioned, I mean, Ron, at least for me, and I know for many, many people, is truly a thought leader in our profession. And so it was an absolute privilege to have him on the podcast. I really enjoyed the discussion. I learned a lot, as always, but I really appreciated him taking the time out to educate all of us on not just his career, but some of the things that they've worked on and are working on there at the Verisage Institute. That was a really fun discussion to have. Well, I hope you enjoyed it as well. As always, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm very findable on LinkedIn. Just look for Mark Goldman CPA and I'll pop right up. Well, I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up for this week. This has been Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. We'll see you all next week. There's more to come. Mm-hmm.